Happy Saturday. It's January 15th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Welcome to what's been a very frigid week here in New York City on the East Coast. Now, as Leonard Cohen sang so memorably, New York is cold, but I like where I'm living, and that is how I feel. Although, I have to say, going outside, it does feel somewhat hazardous. No, no, no. Come on. Speaking as a Chicagoan, it just is like, it, it makes you feel alive. It's par for the course. Look up the Lou Rawls song, The Hawk, and it'll tell you what this weather is like. I went running this morning a very slow jog, and my Fitbit was like, heart rate, peak zone, peak zone, peak zone, you're near death. It was like, okay. So, apparently, like, it is real. I think it's it's like 18 degrees right now. Come on. If you're, if you're on the Shackleton expedition right now, it would be a piece of cake. Ah, you're made of heartier stuff than I am, Michael, as always. You were out running around. You know what I was doing? Tell me. I was trying to play Wordle. Do you know what Wordle is? No, but I don't like the sound of it. Okay, there's no need to be scared of it. <laughs> It is the word game that seems to be sweeping the world. It was started back in November by a man named Josh Wardell, and it's Wordle, W-O-R-D-L-E. He is a software engineer from New York, and he created it for his partner during lockdown as a way to sort of like do who loved word games. And the whole point is you get six chances to discover, to figure out a five-letter word. And he launched it November 1st. 90 people played it online, and as of last Friday, almost 2 million people have played it. So it's very simple, and what I like about it is you don't get sucked down this wormhole. Julia Vitale actually wrote about it too this week in the issue, in the issue as one of our best, but you simply go to a website, powerlanguage.co.uk, where you get the daily Wordle. I love word games. I play words with friends with my mother all the time. As I say, it's my senility test for her. Now we've got a new one. <laughs> Your poor mother, Barbara. I apologize <laughs> on his behalf. Sheesh. I just like making sure like the words are still coming. Which is, she loves word games. Like, but Wordle, I highly recommend everyone get in on it. And it's free. Is it better though than the New York Times spelling bee? Just different. Huh. Just different. Okay. I certainly need to be wasting more time screwing around with apps, so sign me up. But it's not an app. It's simply, and you can only play it once a day, which is great, because like once you're done, you're done. It's not sort of luring you back to go down this rabbit hole of, but it's just like, okay. It's almost like the old junior jumble in the newspaper, right? You'd show up, play it once, and like, okay, there it is. It's done. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, fine. Interesting. Well, what a week it's been, Michael. First of all, I need to know your status. Have you tested positive? Negative. <laughs> me too. Did you hear me knocking on wood? I did. I did. I did. And you? Yeah, so far so good. I mean, who knows? Like, this thing is a mess, but we'll see how we're doing. I'm optimistic that we'll be in a different place in February, or at least I hope, but for now it feels rough. Yeah. What was that meme going around? Everyone was sending these sort of, um, I think there were these two women with this like Chinese sword coming at each other. And it's like, if you haven't gotten Omicron yet, this is what it feels like. You're sort of dodging. You feel like you're dodging it every second. Michael, I sent you that. Okay. Speaking of someone who <laughs> needs a senility test. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Remember? Oh God. This is where we're at, ladies and gentlemen. It's all a blur. It's all a blur. Groundhog Day is like weeks away, but it feels like it's already here. Look, 
Thank God we have a great issue full of deliciousness in this week's edition of Airmail. Plenty of stories to keep us on our toes. No senility test required. Phew. No senility test required, but I will jump right into a story we have this week about overused words. You and I talked a few weeks ago about words we're kind of loathing, phrases we're kind of loathing, one of which was, I'm gutted. We've got a whole column this week, right? I love it. We need to call attention to this stuff. And dear listeners, please check us on it because Michael and I are guilty of this too. What is your most overused? word do you think my most overused word (laughs) at least when we're dealing with technical difficulties trying to get this podcast going yes exactly what would yours be it's definitely fabulous obviously Hmm. don't you remember when i first met Graydon? every third word that i said was fabulous and he joked that we should name you the fabulous editor and i think he was kind of halfway serious about that well I think you're fabulous well thank you it's the department of fabulousness because apparently everything i write about is just fabulous or want to write about. See, that would fall under, I guess, what he says in his column this week is about, and it's based on, there was a Lake Superior State College in Michigan published a list of banished words, and some of them showed up, one of which they said was the phrase, no worries, which I agree with, but my version of it that I can't stand is when you ask someone to do something, or even Say you're in a restaurant and you're like, and the wait staff person comes by and says, what would you like? And you say, well, can I have maybe scrambled eggs and bacon and coffee? And then say, no problem. Why was it even, why is, why is problem even introduced into the conversation? It's not a problem. I'm here in a restaurant. So, but why is no problem always the answer to like, I can do that or be, be happy to do that? Sure. Coming right up. No problem. Yeah, no, I understand. It's trying to sound like lackadaisical and chill, and it just sounds dismissive. Right, which is the Australian version of no worries. Mm-hmm. I embrace the return to more formal language. What are some other examples of banned words here? Things that we should ban. Don't mention it. Touching base. Uptick. Going forward. Reaching out. Literally is the big overused one, which is not just overused, but always misused, right? And then I've noticed it gets combined with, this is when people do the double, they combine two of my ones that put nails in my head, which is when they say, I am literally obsessed with. Did I say that on this episode? Oh God, sorry. No, but you know, when people are obsessed, I'm obsessed with kale. I am obsessed right now. (laughs) Obsessed is watch The Exorcist. That's what happens when your mind is taken over by something. Obsessed is like kind of intrigued by it. I'm really into it right now, but I am literally obsessed by Emily in Paris season two. That would be a bad overusage of it. No, it drives me insane. But you know, like I can't, sometimes we can't escape these. They're so prevalent in the vernacular that it's difficult to come up with an alternative. For example, my own email style. I absolutely despise it. Like I just have bad email game. I start off every email the same way. Dear so-and-so, I hope this note finds you very well. I mean, I mean it, but it just sounds like garbage, you know? So if anyone has any other suggestions, Michael, we need solutions here, not just a litany of the problems. Solutions welcome. Please call. Yeah, please send all of your questions, comments, and concerns to general at airmail.news. I think that's our email address. Buckle up because we've got another restaurant for you from Evan Funk, who is the proprietor or the co-proprietor of Felix in Venice Beach. Have you ever been to Felix? I have too. Oh, Do you agree with me that it's the best pasta in the U.S.? I wouldn't say the best, but maybe the best in the West. Excuse me? Okay, I know you're loyal to Rita and Jody, so whatever, but I'm going to go there. I think it's like my favorite pasta in the U.S., and they have pizza, too. Excuse me? Can I get a replay of that? (laughs) 
I know, I know, I know. I can't help it. Michael, you know how much I love pasta. And when pasta and pizza are served simultaneously in the same restaurant and the restaurant's extraordinary, I just get very excited. I'm sorry. I think it's like an incredible, Felix is incredible. It's like some people, some New Yorkers land at LAX and they immediately go to In-N-Out Burger. I land at LAX and I immediately get in line at Felix. And I have no shame about that. I will order half of the menu. I will happily eat it. I'll take 14 Tums sleep horribly and it's all worth it it's just like homer simpson goes to the west coast totally he's my inspo anyway so evan funk has a new restaurant it's called mother wolf it's quite a different affair from felix although it's sure to be as hot so mother wolf is an 8600 square foot homage to roman cuisine and it opened in the landmarked hollywood building that once housed the citizen news so you probably remember the tale of romulus and ramus who are the two founders of rome that were raised by a mother wolf there you go and this guy is such an extraordinary character for a lot of reasons, not only because he makes incredible pasta, but also because he's not really Italian, it seems. He's a seventh-generation Californian, and he once worked as a sous chef at Spago under Wolfgang Puck, but then he moved to Bologna to study the ways of pasta making. And in 2016, he opened Felix to great fanfare, and there he holds court in a glass cage in the middle of the dining room where he hand-rolls pasta during service. Mother Wolf is going to be a bigger stage for him. It's in this beautiful Art Deco building with vaulted ceilings and Murano glass light fixtures, a lot of red. And the service captains are wearing white suit jackets that nod to Al Moro, which is that fabulous ancient restaurant in Rome. And, you know, I think that what he's trying to do is create some of that old world formality. At least that's what he tells Gabe Ola, who wrote this story for us. He says, quote, need to create an experience Angelinos will drive through traffic for. So something tells me that he will achieve that handily. But it's a great restaurant to watch and you can read all about it in the issue. It's great. I got a DM on my Instagram last week from a very loyal listener who said, I just want to point out that sometimes you guys have been lately talking about getting into exclusive restaurants and all this stuff. And there is a pandemic going around and and she said, people I know, everyone I know seems to have Omicron. And it seems a little insensitive to be talking about going to places like this when no one I know is. And I said, listen, I appreciate the thought and it's a good comment. But I said, I think Ashley and I are a little bit like Eric Adams right now, the new mayor of New York, which is like, if you're healthy and careful, you should and be going out and can be going out and enjoying a good meal, doing it safely and wisely, and also putting some money into the economy and helping out businesses. So just wanted to say that. Yes, exactly. And it's a fine line to toe. And it's something we struggle with because we want to be responsible citizens and protect ourselves and others from this virus. But we also, it's been two years and at a certain point, our city really suffers when we don't get out there and support these restaurateurs. We both have friends that are in this business that have had some real highs and lows over the past few years. And right now, at least in New York, it's it's a low period. You know, everyone is feeling that, you know, January has always traditionally been a tough time for restaurants because people are trying out those New Year's resolutions and trying to eat more at home and make their own food and that coupled with Omicron. It's such a tenuous business to be in in the first place that if you can support these places and you feel like it's the right decision and it feels good to you, by all means. If not, stay home. We totally understand one way or the other. But yeah, anyway, it's a tough line to toe and it's a complex situation. We can also recommend a lot of great places for takeout if you would like to have some of those. Michael? I'll keep my secrets to myself right now. Oh, come on. I know you have that secret line into Polo Bar. Don't lie. (laughs) I don't think Polo Bar is doing home delivery anymore, but I will suggest a great pizzeria in the neighborhood called 90 
seconds to Naples, which if you haven't tried it and you live below 14th Street, best pizza outside of Naples, maybe. Yum. Love it. I've been cooking a lot from Allison Roman's newsletter. Do you get that? I've noticed. I see it on the gram all the time. Lots of hearty little soups and broths and things. It's really good. She comes up with one recipe a week. I get it on like, I think it's either Thursday night or Friday morning. And I know that it's going to be one of my meals for the weekend. It's always solid. It's like six ingredients and it's done under an hour. What's not to love? Well, Michael, we're so happy to have Sam Kashner here as Hollywood and culture lovers everywhere are reeling from the loss of Peter Bogdanovich. Sam has spent most of 2021 with the gentleman, and he's going to tell us all about what they were working on. So, Sam, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, thank you. It's very kind of you to think of Peter and to do this. It's lovely, really. Thanks a lot. So before we get started on the new project, take us back to 20 years ago. How did you first meet Peter Bogdanovich? Oh, well, I wrote a instantly forgettable little novella, an epistolary novel, you know, made of, up of letters. The inspiration was uh, Frederick Exley's Fans Notes, I think, which is, is a masterpiece. I recommend to everyone. But I wrote this novel called Sinatra Land, and it ended up with a very unlikely producer, the woman who had made all of the Thomas the Tank Engine shows for TV with, with uh, Ringo star, you know, and she wanted to try to make a movie out of it and was fine with me. I really didn't know the first thing about such things. But what was thrilling was that she wanted Peter Bogdanovich, whose movies she loved, to take it on and to direct it. So Sam, you then got a call some years later from someone in Peter's office asking you if you would want to work on a screenplay about George and Ira Gershwin correctly. Right. Well, we had remained in touch for, for a long time through phone calls and emails and that sort of thing. I always called him when one of the great heroes passed away. But I got a phone call from Peter and he said, Louise has a wonderful idea. What do you think of a movie about the Gershwin brothers? And that was just, that was symphonic music to my ears because I had co-written along with Nancy Schoenberger, a biography, our first book really was a life of Oscar Levant. And Levant was the great friend and and purveyor of Gershwin's, interpreter of Gershwin's music. So this was right in our wheelhouse, as it were. And so I said, that's a marvelous idea. Or as I think you say in the piece, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know your Gershwin. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. Yes, yes. And the other thing about it that I thought would make it even more interesting, because it's not a cradle-to-grave story, was the fact that when George Gershwin when he was trying to, to write and make Porgy and Bess, he asked Todd Duncan, the great singer out of Washington, D.C., if he would be interested in playing the role of Porgy. And Todd Duncan said, you know, looking around this fabulous Riverside Drive penthouse apartment of the Gershwins, you know, he said, do you really know anything about the gullahs and about the world you're attempting to write about? And he said, I'll consider it if you go down with me to Foley's Island in the Carolinas. And so the heart of the movie is this trip that George Gershwin and Todd Duncan took down to Foley's Island and where George lived among the gullahs, you know. So what was Bogdanovich like when you first met him? Had he been a hero of yours? Had you been familiar with his work? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, when this whole idea came up to 
collaborate in this movie. In a way, I, at first, I didn't think I could do it because I was I was just too, I don't know, I, I thought collaborators maybe shouldn't be in awe. And I loved his movies. I loved every bit as much his writing. He just was a kind of effortless, beautiful writer about the movies for Esquire and then in his books. I just felt, I'm just going to sit there and eagerly listen to everything and I'll have nothing to contribute and I'll just be kind of just taking up space and what could I possibly offer to this brilliant, gifted fellow? But on the other hand, because Sinatra Land had sort of ended up as a great big jumble sale of a mistake, not due to Peter, but it just was a bad marriage of myself, this particular producer and, and Peter. And she was kind of a novice to movie making. And so it just never materialized. So we both thought it was kind of a way to salvage what had been lost with Sinatra Land two decades ago. Plus, I love the story and so on. So, But he turned out to be a, a wonderful collaborator. I learned more than I offered, I'm sure. But he was very generous and, and funny, and it was a great mimic. So if something had gone terribly wrong in the screenplay or with the scene, if there was not enough suspense about something, for example. He would imitate Alfred Hitchcock. There's a spot-on, flawless imitation of Hitchcock correcting our screenplay. It was just very entertaining. I mean, he was an actor, after all, originally. So it was an education, both a sentimental education as well as a practical one, and quite a moving and unforgettable experience. Just no one... And also, the thing that was so poignant to me was that he was so excited about this movie, this idea. It was it kind of brought together all the things that he loved, the great Gershwin songbook and the idea of comradeship and love. Sam, you spent so much time side by side working with Bogdanovich. Bring us inside his writer's room. What was he like as a guy? What were some of his habits? What were some of his quirks? Well, we'd sit at a long table and he had an assistant who did a lot of the sort of typing at one end of the table. The sort of books and things we needed were piled high in the middle. I was in the middle of the desk, and Peter had his place the other end of the table. He liked reading scenes in the script out loud, and if something really worked, he would say, it plays. That was like the greatest compliment you could get from him, is that something plays. Because he saw it not just as a director, I think he saw it as an actor, too, whether something was really whether it played, whether it worked. We did a lot of reading out loud from the scenes. And because the structure was, the story is told in flashback, he was very particular about, well, we just can't have a flashback for its own sake. Whoever is relating the flashback to you has to somehow be in the scene in a way. And that sort of never occurred to me. How else would they know? And also he took great pains to think as an audience member as well. It sounds like you equate it to, in your story, it's almost like Act One, the wonderful Moss Hart memoir too, and this apprenticeship. And I'm wondering, you're touching on a little these sort of, these pearls of wisdom about screenwriting. And now when you look back at him, what do you think you learned from him most of all? Oh gosh, well, I mean, I think there was a generosity and you felt a kind of profound love from this fellow, not just for the movies, but for the people who made them, the people who made them possible. 
and a kind of tenderness. I mean, you could see what a romantic he was from from his movies, but to kind of experience a sort of very generous spirit and the joy of the work, I think. That kind of took my breath away, and I will miss that. What do you think separated him? We spoke a little bit last week about him on the show here, but what do you think separates him from other movie directors and writers, if you look at his work? Yeah. For him, the history of the movies, the history of performing It was a living thing to him. His appreciation of the past wasn't just a historical and and dead thing. I mean, Howard Hawks and Hitchcock and Don Siegel, John Ford, these directors were present in his life. I mean, up until the day he died. And he wanted other people to know about it and to know their work. You have an anecdote in here. Orson Welles, speaking of the history, was one of Peter's great heroes. And in fact, Peter helped him through his down and dark moments. And you have the anecdote when Welles was working to get the other side of the wind off the ground, that the studio made him think about who could take that film over if he were not able to direct it, right? Right. You speak in your essay about now this screenplay, which is tentatively titled Our Love is Here to Stay. Mm -hmm. It's crossed over into that territory, right? Will there be a director who will emerge who can take it on? Yes, it's one of the ironies of Peter's. For example, I look at some of those scenes and those so differently now that he's gone. I mean, there was a scene we were kind of working with where George is kind of manic and he's in LA and he doesn't have very long to live. He's not aware of that. And he is talking to his brother, Ira Gershwin, and he talks about how, and this was taken from Gershwin's letters. We didn't just make it up out of whole cloth. And he's telling Ira, you know, I really need what I want most of all is time, time to write down all the music that's in my head and time for all these projects. I didn't think twice about it at the time. And I wanted to kind of get rid of the scene. And so it becomes so much bigger and more revealing. And it's about him. It's no longer just about the Gershwins. It's also about Peter, who is very much in the midst of life and a lot of projects, which we don't have time for here, but it's that same idea. Oh, and then when I was about to advocate for getting rid of the scene, he said, oh, no, no, that's my favorite scene in this movie. So it means so much more now. But you're right, It's this work has now become Peter's other side of the wind, as it were. You talk about a line in the screenplay that you give into Oscar Levant. Oh, yes. George Gershwin's Acolyte, even though it was first written by John O'Hara, the novelist, upon hearing of Gershwin's death at age 38. Could you just tell us that line and how it applies to you now? Yes. Well, Gershwin's death was a great shock, and he was, as you say, so young and very much in the midst of his life and the life of the century. And when word got back to New York that he had died, and John O'Hara wrote, they tell me, George Gershwin is dead. I don't have to believe it if I don't want to. I was thinking about one of the first things I thought of when Peter died. I had such disbelief about it. No, I ended this memorial piece for Peter by saying they, and it really was quite like that. They tell me Peter Bogdanovich is dead, but I don't have to believe it if I don't want to. So just as we have Gershwin's music to comfort us, we have Peter's films and his books, which are themselves celebrations of the movies and the people who made them. So that's some comfort. Thank you for being here, and thank you for a beautiful piece in this week's issue. Thank you both very much, and take care of yourselves. Take care, Sam. Bye, Sam. 
But before we head out, anything at all you can recommend? I have two things I want to recommend. In fact, one is a, they're calling it an audio book or slash podcast. But anyway, if you were as addicted to Get Back, the Beatles documentary on Disney+, Plus, which was full of fascinating footage and you're watching the four of them and you, all you could keep thinking is like, how do they do this? What is the creative process? You really want to ask them like, how are you doing this? How are you coming up with these songs? And what ways you're watching them create them in real time? Well, there's a new podcast out. It's called Miracle and Wonder. It's from Pushkin Industries, and it's hosted by Malcolm Gladwell. And it is a audio exploration with Paul Simon on how he wrote and how he continues to write his songs, everything from The Boxer to America to Sounds of Silence. And it is just a fascinating listen about the creative process and Simon's journey from being a kid on the streets of Queens to writing his breakthrough song, Bridge Over Troubled Water. At the same time, Carol King was writing songs and his journey to, which is still going to this day. So fascinating and riveting piece of work, which explains the creative process. My second is a documentary, and it's about a story that we touched on a little bit a year or two ago here in Airmail, and it's called The Lost Leonardo. It is about the hotly disputed discovery and sales of the purported Leonardo da Vinci. The shortlist for best documentary just got released by the Academy Award for the Oscars. I can't believe this documentary is an honor because it's the whole story with about how these two guys bought the painting down in New Orleans for eleven hundred dollars in two thousand five, two U.S. art dealers, and how they somehow found a guy at the National Gallery in London to say it was a da Vinci. Next thing they know, it's being bought at auction eight years later by the Russian Dmitry Yorolev for $127 million from a Frenchman who he feels then ripped him off. So Dmitry tells him, you've got to sell this painting. Puts it up at auction, and he said, well, I want all my money back. Well, puts it up at auction and sells for $450 million to Mohammed bin Salman. So a riveting documentary, 90 minutes, takes through greed, avarice, the kooky, corrupt world that is the art world. Super good movie. Delicious. I love it. Thank you. And you, my dear? All right. Well, Bill Cohan wrote to us about this movie. Have you seen Pig with Nicolas Cage? I watched it and I was going to recommend it, but I I figured maybe you would watch it and we could discuss it together. I love it. You can watch it on Hulu and it stars Nicolas Cage as a former Portland-based chef named Rob who became a reclusive and somewhat bizarre truffle forager living in this cabin deep in the forests of Oregon. So kind of a caper story. It's a coming of age story it's a family mystery solved like it's it's got a lot going on all in one and some incredible performances from both of these actors especially Nicolas Cage yeah I mean if you thought Nicolas Cage forget your sort of perceptions of him and his film career over the last 20 years and like some of the buffoonery that he's been engaged with because I feel like I was captivated by him in this movie it's kind of this noir film noir meets nature film meets existential sort of Frenchy kind of questioning about what is the purpose of life and art and why are we here? And yet it all works. It's a terrific example of how a small film can be a big film. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great inspiration to start making a mushroom quiche. Yeah. Or it's a great inspiration to moving in the woods and having a truffle pig as your companion who, I just love that pig. I mean, it made James Cromwell and Babe look like 
kid stuff, which it was. And this was just, it was a whole different, you know, it's funny. It's like that film and Lost Leonardo, I feel that they both came out in the summer last year when Hollywood kind of got lost in the shuffle. So I'm glad we're resurfacing both of these. And thanks to Bill for pointing us like a truffle hound or a truffle pig to a great little discovery buried that we had to dig out, right? Yeah, absolutely. And my husband, Dave, and raised pigs as a kid. And now I'm like, oh God, I want a pig for a pet. Like, can we get some of these things? And I know the answer is no, okay, but a girl can dream. I thought you were getting a dog. We are going to get a dog. I can't get a pig if I'm getting a dog, okay? I know, I know. All right, the heart wants what it wants. All right, Michael, on that note, first of all, we should thank you all for joining us. We really appreciate you coming in. It's always great to connect with all of you. And Michael, on that note, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Carrot. Our CMO is Emily David, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. We've got a new edition of Airmail published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You'll also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for listening.